Hi everyone! This is your host Harmit, and you're listening to Tobin Talks. so much for tuning into Tobin Talks. I'm your host, Harmit, and today we have a very eclectic lineup. First up, we're going to be talking to Des Catelier, outgoing quarterback of the University of Manitoba men's football team, about his experience playing for the Bisons for seven years. After that, we'll be talking about the Manitoba government's plan to introduce performance-based funding for post-secondary institutions. We'll be speaking with Scott Forbes, president of MOFA, Manitoba Association of Faculty Organizations, as well as Michael Shaw, who's an executive member of MOFA. And lastly, we'll end off the episode talking to Luke Mayer, host of Signal Distortion here at the UMFM Radio. So first up, we have sports editor Katie interviewing football player Daz Catelier. Tell me more about your role on the Bisons football team and how you started playing football. Yeah, I think with the Bisons, um, my role grew over time. Um, I came in here 18-year-old, fresh out of high school, so definitely had to like earn a little bit of respect and earn playing time. And yeah. you know, and as my career went along, I feel like I grew into like a uh, a leadership role. Definitely in my last couple of years, and you know, I feel like being a quarterback relates to being a leader and. Uh, so I definitely took on that role with the team and, and just trying to you know, set an example for young guys and everything. I've been around for seven years now. So. Okay. Nice. That's what <laughs> yeah. Helam said. I was like, yeah. Helam, you're sure about seven. I yeah. don't want to look like an idiot. You know, He's I've like, been... no, I'm pretty sure it's seven. Yeah, I've been okay. around for a while now. Yeah. Um, well, it was only going to be five, but then uh, COVID happened. Yeah. And then the year right after COVID, I tore my ACL. So then I was here for another year. So mm-hmm. definitely everything got uh, extended a little bit for, for my time here. Are you happy? I know it was kind of a rough journey in between, <laughs> yeah. but you got the extension. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't ideal, but I think I yeah. learned some lessons through the processes, like, uh, you know, overcoming adversity and different different stuff like that, especially through the ACL yeah. injury and yeah. happening right after COVID where I already took a year off and wasn't right. really ready to get back into it. And, and then, then, that, then first game of the season back, and it was Brutal. it was over again. So yeah. um, it was good, though. I mean, it all happened for a reason. I was able to come back this year and have a good season and, and play with the guys, so. It all, it all ended up kind of working out in the end. Nice. That's good. That's good. You spent some time in the CFL, and you did, like, the camp. So what was that experience kind of like? It was pretty sick. I, I'm sure, I don't know if you were in the shirt right now, this, nice. the, the rider shirt, yeah. Uh, but it was, like, a pretty, like, it was a really cool experience. Like, it was, like, obviously it's been, like, my dream to play professional football and something I yeah. want to do uh, going forward. And to be able to have that experience where, you know, I was able to go into camp and uh, it wasn't like I was getting a chance. It was more of like an internship, kind of mm-hmm. like I was telling you. And uh, right. so it was like they kind of bring in a couple of Canadian quarterbacks to be able to kind of experience what the pro camps are like. And so you get the full experience through there. Like I was rooming with guys on the team, quarterbacks in the league oh, now wow. and all that stuff. So it was really cool to be around and just to be around that environment of, you yeah. know, like high-level football. And uh, it was it was really good. It was, a, it was a grind, though. It was like 8 a.m. till 10 p.m. Of, oh, my like, gosh. Like it was literally like wake up. Breakfast, then meetings, practice, lunch, meetings, dinner, meetings, and then you'd go oh home. You'd go back to your room at like let's say eight or nine, and it was like, oh, I got to study for tomorrow. You got to study the playbooks yeah. and all that. But it, I, I loved it. Like I love football. I love the intricacies of football. I love, yeah. I love all that stuff about football. So it was like, it really 
piqued my interest. It was something I wanted to do, so I wanted to keep working at it and, and work hard while I was there. But um, it was a really cool experience. And now having that experience, I feel like I was able to kind of take that back here and improve my game here yeah. and then be able to take that hopefully forward to, to an opportunity that I could possibly get in the future. Yeah. One of the coolest things that I've read about you recently was um, you set the record for the most passing yards this year. Yeah. How does that feel? That's it amazing. It was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. Um, it's not something I'd even really thought of much or given yeah. much thought of throughout my career. Like, um, but I think of something that I look back on and uh, I, I, it's a pretty cool accomplishment, Like, especially like there's been lots of quarterbacks come through the program here, yes. lots of big names. Like, I know like there's to be able to break a record like that, like all time passing yards and, and be in that conversation and be in that list is, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. It's something so to, cool. to look back on and, and for my career as well. Yeah. Does that include the yards of like the receiver running? Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. <laughs> all yards. Yeah. That's crazy. Definitely got to shout out my receivers and O line. Like that doesn't, football is a game of like team, uh, sure. team sport. And so for you don't sure. do it without anybody. So no it's way. like, oh, it, over my career, it's cool because I played when I was 18 and there's all these guys that were 24 and now I'm 24 and I'm playing with all these guys that are 18. So I've seen yeah. kind of generations of people come through the program and yeah. have helped me out in many different ways. So right. I'm very thankful for everybody I've had awesome. interactions with here. Well, that's actually perfect because that leads into my next question, which was like, since you've been in the game for so long, and especially with the Bisons, like mm -hmm. in their program, how have you seen it kind of change? Like the team culture and like the culture with your coaches and stuff kind of change? Yeah, it's I think it's changed quite a bit. I feel like when I came in at first, and I feel like there was a there was always kind of a disconnect between older players and younger players a little bit, and um, not that we didn't get along or anything, but it was yeah. it was almost there was a little bit of a divide and a disconnect and. Right. Uh, that was causing maybe issues on field or different stuff like that. So I remember actually in 20, 2018, a group of us met with the coaches and we, you know, decided to do like make some changes in team culture and how we go about doing business and how we yeah. become a family and different stuff within the team. So, and if you fast forward to now and you can really see those things into effect. And mm -hmm. I feel like that's the, like, the biggest thing I've always wanted to pass forward in my, my legacy here is is like that culture change and in, in nice. the Bisons and being able to pass that forward for, you know, generations and teams to come. And, yeah. and hopefully they can find the success that we weren't necessarily able to have. Like I definitely had goals and thoughts of, you know, winning more here and right. winning a championship and stuff yeah. like that. And I hope some of the stuff that we've passed down helps teams in the future like, sure. accomplish that. Of course. I think it totally will. So what do you think you're going to miss most about your teammates and coaches as you kind of... Uh, you, you're gonna, I'm going to miss just like, man, cause you like live in that locker room. Like yeah. I spend even right now, like I'm spending every day in that locker room. You see the guys, just the daily interactions you have with them and the coaches yeah. and the different things you do. Like we just play ping pong or uh, like play like different little games we have in the locker room and yeah. just being able to inter interact with those guys on a daily basis. is just going to be weird. Like not having the, the locker room in the stadium is kind of like a safe haven for me ever right. since I've like moved here and moving here from Calgary. Like yes. really that's a place where I've like found a home is really in that in locker room, room because that's where I spend basically every day. Right. So mm -hmm. um, just being in there with the guys, I'm going to miss uh, a lot for a lot. sure. Yeah. Nice. You had a major injury. So what yeah. was that kind of looking like for you when you were ready to come back on the field, especially COVID had just started. So mm -hmm. how did that kind of, yeah, well, it was, um, like, I didn't know how to, I never really had an injury like that. I've had little injuries here and right. there, right, like, a couple of weeks at a time or something. Yeah. So I've never had a major injury like like that before. So mm -hmm. definitely, like, first reaction, I was, didn't really know how to go about it. Yeah. And, um, you know, when you're an athlete to the program, I'm very used to, like, working out every day and doing, like, stuff like that. And 
I think that, that process really carried over easily because I don't think that process changed much. Like, right. So you go to the surgery and then it's like, okay, well, you rest a couple of weeks and whatever. And then you get back into it and you got to be in the gym every day and you got to be consistent and you got to like, work at it all the mm-hmm. time. And I was doing that before. So it's just the workouts itself changed, like the rehab yeah. process, like the stuff I was doing changed. But my like daily routine didn't change all that much. And so That's nice. it, it was nice. It almost happened when I was older too, when I'd already kind of established a routine and I right. was able to understand that, okay, it just takes, you know, consistent work kind of every day to yeah. get through this. And it was nice too. Like there's a couple other guys on the team that have been through that injury before. So right. being able to see them now they're playing. And so understanding that there's a, there's an end to the process. Like there's right. a, there's going to be time where I'm going to be able to play. Yeah. And then, yeah, kind of when I got back this year, I think for sure it took a couple games to trust it a little bit. Like I yeah. knew I was back. I knew I was healthy, but I was wearing a brace now yeah. and it's still there. It's on your mind. You don't want to necessarily take that hit right. again. And yeah. so you play a little bit. I, w- I don't want to say timid. I don't think I was playing timid, but you know, yeah. and so um, I think it took just a couple of games to get over that. And then I think as the season progressed, though, it wasn't really ever an issue, like kind of down the line. I felt like I was getting confidence in it back in the knees specifically and just moving around and, and doing different things on, on the field that I'm used to doing. So nice. definitely a process, but is yeah. by the end of the year, I wasn't thinking about it much anymore. Nice. That's yeah. great. How do you feel that the Canvas competitions have changed throughout the years that you're playing? Yeah, I feel like so you never really know which teams are going to be on top of the totem pole. Like when I first came in for for a little bit, actually for a couple of years, it was Calgary was like right. was like big dog. Like you go into Calgary and yeah. it's a it's going to be a tough game. They're going to have a bunch of guys that are pro level players on the on the team, and mm-hmm. like Calgary was always kind of like even so I'm from Calgary, so yes. even when I was growing up, Calgary was always kind of like big. Like they would win yeah. the Canada West a, a lot okay. and. Uh, so when I came here, I kind of knew the challenge with Calgary. We ended up coming close to beating them in 2019, and then they ended up winning the Vanier Cup that year. We did beat them during the regular season that year. Yeah. And then kind of since then, they haven't been that same caliber team. And Sask has kind of been able to take over in that realm. And I feel like we've been able to compete at a high level as well. Whereas when yeah. I first got here, we my first two years, we weren't making the playoffs. And then we've oh, made the playoffs every year since, since those couple of years. So... Definitely, then you see like even teams like China, Alberta, and UBC. It fluctuates. Like I feel like every team in the Can West I've seen not make the playoffs. Every year, every team's had a bad year. Every team's right. and then you've seen every team have success. So mm-hmm. it, it really goes year by year in the Can West, and it's always competitive. What's what does the future hold for you? Where do you see yourself going? Kind of how I see it. Like since the season ended, when it was fresh, couple days, it was pretty hard to like deal with. My career with the Bisons is over. Yeah. But also the uncertainty of, like, maybe my football career is over. Like, you don't know, right? And so um, definitely tough to deal with for a couple of days there until, you know, a little bit more reflection and talking to some people close to me and whatnot. And you kind of have to make a decision on what you're going to do. And, like, I want to play in the CFL. And that process is not a, oh, like, maybe I'll see if I can do it or not. Like, it's an all-in or not type of process. Right. And so, like, I kind of had to make that decision and I'm going to be, all in on trying to make like trying to make it pro and getting an opportunity in the next uh year here at least so um that's kind of what i I, i'm gonna take on for the next year at least is is that challenge and try and make it to the cfl nice what does that kind of look like Like, how do you kind of go about that so after the semester ends i graduate Mm -hmm. and then i'm going to go home for a little bit uh spend some time with the family and then i'm going to go out to vancouver in the new year okay and i have a quarterback trainer out there and he works with different cfl guys different division one guys people looking to go pro and i've worked with him in the past and uh, i have a good relationship with him so 
I'm going to go out there for a couple months and just train. And it's easier to train in BC because you can go outside in the winter. Yes, and right. Winnipeg winter is uh, not really it. You're like fighting for turf time indoors, and it's yeah. it's tough. And uh, yeah, you can lift and work out and different stuff. But I just feel like out there will be my best bet at, at trying to make improvements and like giving myself the best shot to go. So that's kind of my plan right now. Nice. Did you see it coming? Did you think that this is where you were going to be? It's always it's always been a goal of mine. It's always been okay. something like a dream of mine. It's something I wanted to do for yeah. sure. And uh, like you don't see a lot of Canadian quarterbacks make it pro, so it's not yeah. like a, it's a you don't like there's not it's not very common. Uh-huh. And uh, I know like even right now, like I know I'm like against the odds. Like, it's always been something I wanted to do, and I'm going to give it a go at least everything I can. Yeah, yeah. awesome. I mean, what else can you do? Right? Yeah, exactly. You know what you want. That's great. Thanks, Katie and Des. Next up, we have news editor Colton talking to Scott Forbes, president of MOFA, Manitoba Association of Faculty Organizations. Yeah, just to start off with, can you um, talk a little bit about what performance-based funding is and what the MOFA's position is on it? Well, the, the latter answer is quite um, simple. Uh, we're against it. And, and the former is that funding for higher education would be linked to performance metrics, and most notably, things like graduation rates, as, as announced by the province here, they're considering looking at postgraduate income. Okay, the performance-based funding, it, it's used all over the world, but where uh, Manitoba got inspiration from, and coincidentally, province of Saskatchewan got inspiration from, was the state of Tennessee, which was the first American state to introduce performance-based funding. And most American states have, have experimented with this in some form. Manitoba has looked at that under the, it was first announced by Mr. Pallister in 2020. There, there has been extensive research done on performance-based funding. The whole idea is you get institutions within the same university system to compete against each other to, to be the best to perform on the metrics, and those which succeed um, in doing the best get more funding, and those which fail get less funding. And the whole idea is that uh, institutions are supposed to get more efficient at churning out graduates. You turn them out better, faster, cheaper. Experience is, and, and the research shows, and there have been a number of, of, of studies of it shows that it doesn't work. Um, it simply doesn't work. It doesn't increase efficiency. The, the way that some of the, um, the researchers have described it is it doesn't move the needle in any, in any real or tangible way. But what it does do uh, is you have to understand that university administrators are very clever people, and they understand how to, um, to, to move numbers around to make things look good. It results in a gaming of the system. And instead of, instead of graduating more people more efficiently, what's done instead uh, is we start to, to screen for academic quality. Uh, and instead of uh, allowing more students to graduate, what it does is it actually uh, raises barriers. Barriers are raised to those usually of, of lower income status. Data show introduce these systems. It, it reduces diversity within the student population. It favors the wealthy um, uh, and and the white, to, to be blunt about it, and it raises barriers for traditionally marginalized students. 
And this is by raising um, entrance standards, by shifting funding away from income-based supports for, for low-income students, taking those away and giving them to academic scholarships, which much research shows uh, there, there is a strong link between income level and academic performance. So you're, you're, you're basically favoring uh, students from upper-income strata. And so you get these phony increases in graduation rates, which aren't real in any meaningful sense. It's simply process, which there's a there's a technical term for it in, in this literature. Maybe um, you simply take the very best students and, and ignore the rest. Um, and, and this tends to, to decrease participation in higher education, which, you know, MOFA is dead set again. We want to open the doors. We want more students in higher education in Manitoba. We have, we're in the bottom third of the country in participation in higher education. So we think that we should be increasing access, not, not decreasing. A major concern, uh, and concerns the, the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Missions. One of the key recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is to eliminate educational gaps between Indigenous and non-Indigenous students in one generation. Well, quite simply, if you impose performance-based funding on the, the universities and colleges, that ain't going to happen going to make it much more difficult. But what we need to do is we need to provide the resources to assist less academically prepared students. Generally happens with performance-based funding is it's used as a tool to defund higher education. Um, it's rarely associated with increases in funding. It's, it's almost always associated with, with decreases in funding. And it creates disparities among institutions. And the larger institutions with more financial capacity are able to respond more flexibly and, and shift resources around. But smaller universities, and in Manitoba, the two smallest of the four public universities are, are Brandon and St. Boniface. Um, it's universities like that which really suffer. And we know that um, that uh, people in the Brandon University community are concerned that if, if this goes ahead, uh, Brandon University might not survive. Uh, so uh, it imperils some smaller universities. It, it raises barriers um, to student access. It introduces a new and expensive level of bureaucracy, and it doesn't work. Did I mention that one? Um, it doesn't work. So the, the obvious question is, why would you bother with it? Mm, okay. So how would you describe the amount of um, consultation that the government has sought with uh, administration and faculty? There hasn't been a great deal of consultation with the students and faculty. Um, uh, there's been more going on behind closed doors. Uh, ministry staff have met with the university presidents, but we've we've been able to present to ministry staff and, and the deputy minister uh, once as as MOFA, uh, and more recently um, we submitted a, a written submission. Which we haven't had any uh, meaningful feedback about that yet. We've reached out to them, tried to set up meetings with the deputy minister. The, from the faculty perspective, from the MOFA perspective, there hasn't really been much in the way of, um, of consultation yet. We're still waiting to, to hear back from them. And given the fact that it doesn't work, that it, that it creates more problems than it solves, we, we ask the question, you know, why would you bother? The answer which, which we're forced to, to come to is that it really is just political cover for reducing funding for higher education. It's not about making higher education better or more accessible. It's about blaming the universities and colleges, you know, okay, that we set these performance metrics, but they didn't hit them, so, so we're cutting their funding. You know, more often than not, the introduction of performance-based funding is, is associated with cuts to um, public education, public higher education. 
in some cases, it, it's so extreme that the state of Louisiana, they don't tie state support uh, higher education to the performance metrics because that's not going up. That's just going down. What they do is they tie tuition increases to hitting the performance metrics. So if you hit your performance metrics, you can raise tuition even further. And so this is really a strategy to, to shift the burden of financing onto the backs of students. Student tuitions go up, they pay a greater and greater share of, of the cost of higher education, and public funding goes down. That's really what this is about. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah, I think that's all I need from you today, Scott. Thanks for uh, meeting with me on short notice and everything. And uh... To gain more insight about why the province wants to pursue a performance-based funding model, the Manitoban attempted to contact John Reyes, who is the Minister of Advanced Education, Skills, and Immigration. To learn more about the email response that they received, you can check out the article on the Manitoban website called Province Pauses Performance-Based Funding Plans. Thank you for that, Scott Forbes. Up next, our news editor Colton will be interviewing Michael Shaw, executive member of MOFA, about the province's decision to step back from implementing performance-based funding. Why do you think the PC government has backed away a bit from uh, performance-based funding? Well, I think they've heard from university presidents, they've heard from university faculty associations, and they've heard from just general people that it, it, it's been shown to be a really bad idea. Okay. It, it okay. doesn't work in jurisdictions where it's been tried. It does work. Uh, if you understand the underlying implication, is it's a method of cutting funding. For that, it works excellent. Okay, yeah. So, is it? Do you guys feel reassured the fact that it wasn't mentioned in the Stone speech and by Heather Stephenson's comments, or are you still worried that they might try to implement this type of model in the future at some point? I am. I'm very worried that they might implement this type of model. They've been very keen on it since it was first brought up by Brian Palliser. Uh, we know that Stephenson moved off of some of his more controversial things, but she didn't move off of this. Uh, we probably won't get a good answer until the by-election is over because they're not going to answer any political questions right now. So I am not, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I'm not going to be fully optimistic until uh, the next provincial election has occurred and Brian Palliser's to Heather Stephenson group of individuals will no longer be making ideological decisions that uh, go against all of the evidence. So on the subject of elections there, uh, do you think part of the reason that they're backing away may have something to do with fear of election results if they, if they overreach? No, I, I don't think so. I think it was just one more thing that they, they've, they've kind of got enough on their plate. They don't want to anger people who have been very clear about this. Um, and they want to, it's not part of their election strategy to, to do this at this time is what I think the most likely reason is. Um, they're going to be focusing uh, on the things that they think can get them reelected. And this is not something that 
is going to get them reelected uh, one way or the other. So they're not probably going to be working on it. I'm still a little concerned, but we'll see what happens in January. Do you, th- do you think that the way that they um, presented this left the door open for them to um, try and implement this in the future, you think? Absolutely. If you read Stephenson, she's just stepping away for now. And she's, you know, there, there's been no, unlike with Bill 64, where she emphatically said, you know, Bill 64 is dead. Uh, she was nowhere near as emphatic in talking about performance-based funding. Thank you for that, Michael Shaw. Lastly, we have arts editor Alex interviewing Luke Mayer about his show on UMFM, Signal Distortion. Cool. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, tell me about yourself. What What are you in school for? You have a job, interests? Uh, so I am in school for computer engineering, very fun program. I currently work at Indigenous Services Canada as a student. Uh, I was employed there over the summer and I kind of just kept working there through the school year. And for interests, I'd say it's hard to define. I really, I say I'm interested in like, fashion and music and I guess like coding gaming stuff but nothing at really like a high knowledge or surf it's I'd say that I blanket cover most of the bases in terms of the arts kind of interests is what I'd say probably nowadays nowadays I mostly focus on like mute finding new music and stuff like that kind of going in depth of music lore modern music lore is what i yeah cool when when did your show start and the like what was the kind of inspiration of the show so it started in about september or mid-september-ish i'd say so sometime at the start of school and the inspiration for the show was that Number one, I found a lack of programming on UMFM that was correlating to my musical interest, which I think is a very general music interest. I, it's the words that I like is like internet core to say. There's a very specific subset, a demographic of people online that listen to very varied musical artists spanning over a number of genres that have no correlation to one another don't even exhibit nearly the same emotion or feeling that those two artists no two artists alike evoke that in one another in the listener and yet there's a very specific subset of people that all listen to those same artists and i think that there's that's a demographic that can be appealed to and that should like, I don't know, it's just a community of different sounds that I think are cool. Mm. Okay. Um, where did the uh, name, what did the name for the show come from? Signal Distortion? <laughs> Signal Distortion. I kind of just came up with it randomly one day. I think okay. that it's, 
um i was trying to make up a name that wasn't really too out there yet kind of appealed to that idea of an internet sounding kind of name i don't want to you don't i don't want a name to be too flashy but i don't want it to be absolutely nothing and i think that in general at least what my idea for the show was at the start the sounds were very clashy bombastic kind of sounds which can be kind of equivalent to a sort of distortion okay cool so yeah what 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 can uh, listeners expect to hear on this show listeners can expect to hear anything that's really i'd say popular on the internet right now in this specific subset of people that ranges from this newfound wave of hyper pop ex hyper pop artists creating indie tronica music to some standard plug rap found off of soundcloud to songs that you'd hear in the basements of midwestern emo people bands i don't know stuff like that kind of stuff ranging from all sides of the web confined into one hour of music okay what kind of specific communities are you talking about when you're talking about these subs like what what kind of websites would you would you find these people on (laughs) rate your music unfortunately but it's mostly like that kind of rate your music discord last fm twitter niche music twitter kind of group i think discord is probably one of the ones that is most prevalent because a lot of these artists especially in the most in the community that i really made this show mostly for hyperpop and digicore all of their music is their community is wholeheartedly on discord a lot of their music like it's that it's big enough discord is big enough of a representation in their community that discord themselves are actually making a documentary based on that music scene because i'd say it's the first music scene a lot of that every single member of the community is really on discord and makes all their music on discord all collaborations and thoughts and everything is really hosted on discord and i think a lot of the listeners are primarily on discord as well i think that rate your music is a big conglomerate for people that don't necessarily know one another uh, and don't have discord don't even have that first discord connection so i'd say rate your music is the public side of that type of thing but Mm. discord is primarily where you'd find this type of music okay cool um and yeah what what do you uh hope people get out of it why, why do people watch people care about the show i think that uh, while this appeals to very a, a very niche subset of listeners i think that really the reason that it's appealing to only this niche group of people is because it hasn't seen that light of day exposure i don't like to be the one the type of gate the type of person to gatekeep artists to stuff like that so i think that 
I really, I really personally like sharing music with people and I've loved to talk about it even when I was listening to the most basic of artists like Tyler and Car Seat Headrest. The, so I hope that people can come to realize these artists because I think that if they had more exposure in the right areas that they'd have major, major, major community backing and a much larger uh fan base as i'd say yeah cool cool okay yeah just a reminder that if you ever have any suggestions or feedback for people who you'd like to see on the podcast, if you'd like to be on the podcast, if you want to send in any of your poetry, short stories, any of those types of things, please email me at audio at themanitobin.com. You can find Tobin Talks Thursdays at 1130 on 101.5 FM radio, which is UMFM radio, and you can listen to us anytime on all of your podcast streaming services, such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts. That's it for today, and we'll see you on the next episode of Tobin Talks.